Hey friends, this is Michael Bohm with Youth Apologetics Training. Uh, today we're going to have Holly Pivik of spiritoferror.org back on. Uh, again, Holly Pivik is the author of two books, A New Apostolic Reformation, A Biblical Response to a Worldview Movement, and uh, again, that's more of a scholarly uh approach to this topic of apostles, prophets, and the New Apostolic Reformation. She also has another book, God's Super Apostles. Both of them fantastic books. I would highly recommend them if you're if you're interested in this subject. But again, today we're going to have Holly Pivik back on, and we're going to continue talking about the New Apostolic Reformation, uh, beliefs of this movement, our apostles and prophets for today. Uh, and these types of things. So, with that, Holly Pivik, welcome back to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Thanks, Michael. Thanks so much for bringing me back on. Absolutely. It, it has been um, just fantastic. I love your book, God's Super Apostles. Uh, still chipping away at a new apostolic reformation, the, the other book that you wrote with uh, Douglas Guybet. Fantastic books. Um, so, yeah, let's just kind of pick up where we left off last week. What is prophetic illumination? I hear that term thrown around so many times amongst this movement. Right. This is, uh, my prophets claim that God gives them sudden new understandings of scripture that no one else has seen before uh, they have. And so they refer to this as prophetic illumination. And, um, they would even claim that, for example, you know, the way Martin Luther, uh, you know, um, what happened to him when he uh, discovered the doctrine of justification, you know, uh, that that was through the process of prophetic illumination, which, you know, we would disagree with. Um, but but they so they claim that that they received these sudden new in, insights into scripture that no one has seen before. And um, that's uh, Bill Heyman uh, is one of the leading prophets in this movement, and um, he's someone who uh, discusses this quite a bit in his books. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, we talked about last week how you can uh, judge or determine whether or not uh, this prophetic illumination is is from God? Is this new revelation from God? Or is it basically a product of, of their imagination? Or worse, um, I, I don't want to leave out the possibility that when you clear your mind and uh, allow a spirit to speak, you know, this is coming from a guy who was part of the New Age movement for quite a while, practiced Wicca when I was younger as well, and inviting spirit guides to speak to my mind. When you sit there and um, empty your mind to receive a new revelation, you don't know what spirit is speaking. It could be your own imagination, or there might actually be a spirit talking to you. And you don't know where this spirit is coming from. It's a very dangerous thing. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, yeah, if you have not heard part one, go back and listen to part one. We talk about how you can determine whether or not these these uh, prophetic words that you believe you're uh, uh, hearing from God, whether or not they're from God himself, or these words you're hearing these prophets speak. So another little rabbit trail I want to start off with here today. 
just before we really get into it is the passion translation. This totally eluded me. I've never heard of this until reading your book. Um, totally new to me. In fact, I, I would imagine back, what, 10, 11 years ago when I was part of this movement, I don't think the passion translation was even, um, not even a twinkle in somebody's eye at this point. Um, but what is the passion translation and how is that dangerous? Well, it, it's a new NAR translation of the Bible. It's produced by Apostle Brian Simmons of Stairway Ministries. And he's been releasing it in installments. So you're right, it is, uh, it's, it's fairly new on the scene. And he claims that the Lord visited him and personally commissioned him to produce this new Bible. And it's been endorsed by a number of well-known NAR leaders like Bill Johnson of Bethel Church in Reading and uh, Cheon of Harvest Rock Church in uh, Pasadena, California. And it's wildly popular in the movement. And I, I actually think it's one of the more disturbing uh, developments in the NAR movement. Um, it's dangerous because it contains completely reworded verses, making it appear that the Bible supports NAR teachings. Uh, for instance, NAR teachings about apostolic decrees. You, you find support for that in the Passion Translation in Philippians 1. And um, he admits that uh, he's not a scholar of the original biblical languages. He has admitted that, and he works as a lone translator. So he does not have the qualifications needed to produce a reliable translation of the Bible. But his this, this NAR Bible is being embraced. You can see by the its rankings on Amazon, the different installments. It's selling very well. And um, it's just uh, it's it's very it's very troubling that he's even passing this off as a translation because it's not a translation at all. It's not even an accurate paraphrase. Like you know, like the message might be. This is <laughs> this is just right. uh, it, it's it's um, it's a very dangerous thing. Do you, do you have any examples of passages that he's reinterpreted? Uh, Right. Well, I mentioned in Philippians uh, 1, I don't have the Passion Translation right in front of me right now, um, but he, there's a reference to um, apostolic decrees. I, I actually blogged about this recently. If people went to my blog, Spirit of Error, there's a, a recent um, post within the last couple weeks, I believe, where where we actually um, look at his translation of Philippians 1 versus one and two, I believe, and just go through those few couple verses and actually show uh, how off just these couple verses are. Um, and and in those verses, uh, he he makes reference to an apost the doctrine of apostolic decrees. Um, and so I'm sorry I don't have that in front of me right now, but people can go there to my blog and look at that post and see how the NAR teaching of apostolic decrees comes through in, in the first couple of verses of Philippians in the Passion Translation, and then and then see it compared to, uh, you know, more re reliable translation of the Scripture and, and what it actually says. Uh, no reference to apostolic decrees, just, <laughs> there's the spoiler, <laughs> in, in the reliable translations. Yeah, yeah, as you, as you were talking, I was frantically flipping through your book here, trying to find 
uh, the section where you talk about it, you do quote one of the passages, um, Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. Yeah. And yeah, and it says, and those who are taught the word will receive an impartation from their teacher, a transference of anointing takes place between them. I've read that passage in a, a um, well, a, a, a reliable translation. Um, I'm, I'm booting up my e-sword right now so I can read it in um, the King James Version. Let's see here. And Galatians 6, verse 6 uh, it says this, it says, let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Wow. Right. And, you know, oh, I, that's, that's a big change. <laughs> I'd like to mention, uh, actually, uh, as we were writing uh, the book, we cited that example. And as I was going to document it, I discovered something very interesting. If you look there in the footnotes of the book where we, we, we discussed that uh, footnote C, we note that Simmons has since substantially revised his translation of Galatians 6.6 6, and no longer speaks of a transference of anointing that takes place between teachers and their followers, but instead states that a, quote, sharing of wealth takes place between them, unquote. This revised translation of Galatians 6.6 6 can be seen in the second edition of his book. In Simmons' earlier translation of Galatians 6.6, 6, the reference to a transference of anointing correlates to a distinct doctrine within our theological system, but Simmons modified his translation so that it does not parallel our teaching so closely. We wonder what basis Simmons had for shifting his translation in such a substantial way and doing so without explaining the need for a revision. So it's very interesting to me that, that between the first edition and the second edition, he took that out with no explanation. And uh, he had... In some public exchanges I actually had with him online, he had said that because of some critiques I had raised, he was actually revising uh, his translation. Hmm. And so, but that's very troubling to me because, um, you know, translators don't just, reliable translators don't just make complete changes in their translations like that without making any note, providing any justification. Again, this is a, another example of why this is not a reliable translation. And um, so, so that particular teaching cannot, you know, be found in the newer edition of his translation of Galatians like it can the earlier ones, but other not teachings still can be. Uh, now, is he, I don't know, is he claiming that God is somehow dictating this translation to him, that, that he is getting some kind of uh, communication from the Lord as far as what to write down here? Well, that's that's what we ask in our book. We say, is, is he, um, where is he getting his translation from? Is he relying on prophetic illumination? That does seem to be implied um, from some of the endorsements that are um, contained uh, you know, in the Passion Translation, there's a, a comment by Apostle Cheon where I, I don't have the exact wording again. It's in our book there that when we discuss that, but but he says something to the effect of Brian Simmons is revealing uh, deeper insights into the Scripture. So that kind of language, you know, lends itself to to seeing seeing that prophetic illumination. This teaching is playing some kind of role in, in, in some translation process. So it certainly seems to be implied. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I found your article. I went to your website, spiritofair.org, and in the search bar, I just typed in apostolic decree. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the very first article that came up was uh, the one that you wrote about the Passion Translation and Philippians. Um, and uh, yeah, you, you make several points here that are really good. In this Passion Translation, uh, Simmons has added words that are not present. Okay, that's that's dangerous. Right there, the Bible says that there is a curse on somebody who adds to his word. Um, he's pulled from another book of scripture to overplay the fatherhood slash authority of the apostle in view. Uh, he's downplayed the holiness or separateness that the people in view are supposed to show. Uh, boy, you, you do get that a lot in uh, the NAR movement where uh, God is somewhat um, um, brought lower and mankind is elevated. These, you know, the saints are elevated in a way, well, in a way where they've almost attained some elements of godhood. Um, <clears throat> you say that he downplayed the role of overseers, which might sound like they have actual authority in the local church by referring to them as not as overseers, but as pastors. And he's also imported the NAR theology of apostolic decree again, to heighten the role of the apostle in a phrase that would have otherwise seemed like simply a benign and kind way to start a letter. So some of that is in reference to where you actually quoted the very first couple lines uh, in in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, where where Paul is making a greeting, three sentences, uh, in your typical translations, and in Simmons' translation, there's two paragraphs that that are um, put in there to represent those three lines. It's it's wow. Right. So anyway, and he said he said we decree over your lives. I, I've pulled it up here. We decree over your lives the blessings of divine grace and supernatural peace that flow from God, our wonderful Father, and our anointed Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And the doctrine of apostolic decree is the idea that apostles have been given authority by God to decree things, to actually um, bring things through their words into existence. And um, so you can see that doctrine coming through, coming through there. And it's um, it's kind of like the um, the idea of um, name it, claim it, but it's the, uh-huh. the apostle has this authority. Not just to uh, you know name it claim it for in an individual's life, but actually to name it claim it for an entire nation, or you know, so it, it's it's a it's an authority that apostles claim to have to decree things into reality. You know, and that's an interesting uh, theology there, the the positive confession idea that. Through our words, we can create reality, that we can actually confess or claim something. And this is coming from somebody who is on the inside of these types of movements. When you're praying and you make a claim, like you, uh, okay, for example, we'd be praying for somebody's healing. We wouldn't say, Lord, please heal them or something along those lines. We weren't asking for healing. We were telling God. We were commanding him. We would say things like, we thank you, Lord, that that, that you would, that you're healing this person of cancer or whatever. We would actually assume the end result, 
And towards the end there, I started getting this horrible, sick feeling in my stomach that we were actually, that we had the gall to boss God around. It is a very scary thing. And going back to my new age uh, past, that's actually called the law of attraction. It comes from shamanism. And it's, it's the idea that through our words, we can influence the cosmos to give us our desires. It's a very scary thing. It's, it's dangerous, and I think it's really offensive to God, who, you know, we almost start treating like a heavenly bellhop who has to give us what we ask because we set it in a way that is um, what we're assuming the end result. Uh, it, it's dangerous. Anyway, do you have anything to add to that? Well, no, sorry. just in... in I kind of hit on this, but the, with what's this, you know, in this positive confession, this has been a teaching that has been around for, for many years, but the distinctive, uh, NAR twist on positive confession is, is to take what individuals have been using just to decree what they want in their own lives and to make those decrees for entire nations. So, so that, they see that as that's a strategy that has been missing. That's a reason the church has not been able to establish God. One reason the church has not been able to set up God's kingdom on earth yet is because um, apostles haven't been here who have the authority to decree, to speak into existence things for entire nations. So we will decree, this apostle decreeing that righteousness will be restored to America. And they have the authority to make those decrees, and, and, and through these decrees, they can, you know, um, establish uh, God's kingdom on earth. So that's a distinctive, um, you know, NAR uh, a development within the NAR movement, a distinctive twist on uh, the doctrine of positive confession to apply it, you know, to nations and not just individuals. Okay, well, good segue. Um, speaking of nations, tell me about strategic level spiritual warfare. Yes. What is that, and, 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 and how is that also used to affect nations? Right, right. This is another strategy that has uh, supposedly been revealed by Nara apostles and prophets uh, that will help uh, them and their followers set up God's kingdom on earth, and it's strategic level Spiritual warfare is a NAR form of spiritual warfare that involves attempting to cast out powerful evil spirits, uh, known as territorial spirits, that are believed to rule over geographical regions of the earth and over societal institutions. And it is believed that only NAR apostles actually have the authority to cast out these high-ranking territorial spirits. So they'll say, you know, individuals have the authority to cast out... Um, you know, just regular churchgoers, they have the authority to cast demons out from individuals. But these are like lower level demons that aren't as powerful. But the only people that have the authority to cast out these really powerful high-ranking demons, these territorial spirits, are the apostles. And so, but they enlist the help of their followers through a number of practices. Uh, they've revealed uh, practices like spiritual mapping, prayer walking, identificational repentance ceremonies, these type of things are, are strategies that are, are uh, practices that are associated with uh, strategic level spiritual warfare, stra uh, practices that are employed um, to in attempts to cast out these territorial spirits. So how does that work? Like as far as prayer mapping and, and mm -hmm. uh, prayer walking, uh, 
in these other tactics, you know, on the ground, how does that actually work? Well, supposedly work. Right. Well, uh, they'll say that it is important to identify which particular territorial spirit is exerting uh, rule over a geographical region. So um, often uh, spiritual mapping is a practice where uh, where people who are part of this movement will, in, in an attempt to identify the territorial spirit, will um, survey the a certain region, like maybe their city. And they'll try to identify uh, places of um, wickedness in the city. So that may be a New Age bookstore or a strip club or, you know, these different places. And, and, and after surveying the region and, and, and locating the, the places where, you know, Satan seems to be exerting influence, they'll determine, okay, well, it seems that there are a lot of... Um, maybe new age bookstores in this town. So, you know, maybe the territorial spirit that rules in this region is a spirit of the occult, you know, and, and so the, it's, it's through this kind of approach that they will attempt to determine the identity of the territorial spirit. And then after that's done, they will attempt to cast out that territorial spirit by um, directly confronting it. And uh, one way that's often done is through prayer walking. So, so the an apostle and his followers or her followers will um, will go on a walk around the perimeters of the city or of the city hall um, and and say prayers of, that directly confront the territorial spirit in order to cast it out. And it's believed that once a spirit is cast out, then then after that, uh, any attempts at evangelism will be effective because this spirit is gone, and so so now um, this this place can be one for Christ because that spirit has been cast out. He no longer has influence over that region. If if I'm being clear here, so um, that that's a common way that this is done, and, and and this has been done on a much larger scale. So you have individual Christians in small communities that are engaging in these type of practices. And then on a larger scale, you have someone like Cindy Jacobs, Prophet Cindy Jacobs of Generals International. She's initiated like um, continent-wide prayer walks, spiritual mapping projects and prayer walks where where she has gotten groups of NAR followers in different regions to complete spiritual mapping projects to identify the territorial spirits in all the different um, states or regions, and and then has enlisted believers in these communities to use the knowledge that they've gained through the spiritual mapping to go on prayer walks in, in their uh, individual regions, in their states and cities. And so so this has been done on a, you know, even on a continent-wide, North America, you know, uh, continent-wide scale. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And... I have actually taken part of this as well. Uh, we had a, a, I don't know if you'd call him a prophet or what, but a, a fellow named Henry Groover, who is f- pretty famous for prayer walking. He came out to our church, and next thing you know, everybody, we, we mapped out a, a city called Fort Collins in Colorado. We walked this whole city. We had the, the whole city mapped out. We walked the city, we prayed, uh, and then we supposedly we had identified this 
territorial demon that was over Fort Collins, we went up to a, uh, a, a high spot in town. Fort Collins butts right up against the foothills. So we went up to a spot near Horsetooth Mountain, and we went up there and we rebuked this, this demon, uh, the pastor did, and then we blew shofars and we declared Fort Collins free. Uh, now, since then, uh, not a single strip club has closed. None of the adult video stores have closed. Uh, marijuana has just gone rampant in Fort Collins <laughs> and in Colorado in general. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the, the city has only gotten worse. It is far more liberal. Um, there is now a massive uh, uh, um, Islamic influence in Fort Collins as well. Um, it's gotten so much worse. Uh, now tell me, okay, as far as this whole idea of strategic level spiritual warfare, it's been going nationwide slash worldwide for years now. Do they have any, uh, and I understand this is kind of circumstantial, almost, um, you know, you really can't prove anything here, but do they have any evidence of any town getting any better at all from doing any of these practices? Well, there are people in the movement, yes, who will who will claim they have evidence. I don't know if you've heard of the transformations uh, videos that have been produced by George Otis Jr., but those no. are often pointed to. It's a documentary series that that looks at at different communities that around the world, um, including uh, one in California, I believe it's Hemet, California. Um, that have been um, supposedly transformed. They've, they've undergone significant transformation. And um, so see Peter Wagner will point to these videos as places where, um, where you know, uh, an apostle um, was able to bring about spiritual uh, transformation of these communities through practices, like practices of the strategic level spiritual warfare. And... Um, Almolonga, Guatemala, is considered a major NAR tourist attraction, and uh, people will go there because, you know, it's been reported that this place has been completely transformed, that, you know, all or most of the bars have been shut down, that um, become one of the most prosperous regions in all of Guatemala. And so um, they will point to these these communities that are in the transformation documentaries as evidence that this can happen interesting now so they have just a small handful of of places where they believe this has actually happened but this has been going on worldwide for what 20 years now a little bit more right and i and i must point out too that that people will dispute their claims that these places have actually been transformed people who live <laughs> people who live in him at california you know will say uh no we can say that this is not, you know, there's still a lot of problems here. <laughs> or people who live in, you know, uh, Almolonga or these different places will 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 uh, dispute the claim that these this transformation has has actually occurred in the way it's being portrayed. So, but 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 that is something that they'll point to and they'll say the only reason we haven't seen more transformation in more communities is because uh, apostles have the authority of apostles has not been embraced yet in those communities. Oh, oh, okay. All right. So when, when it doesn't work, it's, it's usually our fault. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, I understand that. Um, 
yeah, where, where I come from, again, if somebody didn't get healed after our pastor or a traveling apostle or prophet that came to our church, if they didn't get healed, it was always the person's fault. Um, it, it was some kind of sin in their life. They didn't, they didn't accept the healing. They didn't walk out the healing, these types of things. So, okay, I understand that. Um, well, change in gears. Uh, what is the seven mountain mandate? Okay, now our apostles and prophets claim God has revealed yet another strategy, a new strategy uh, for advancing God's kingdom, which they refer to as the seven mountain mandate, or sometimes you'll hear seven mountain prophecy, but usually it's seven mountain mandate. And according to this revelation, the church must take control, take dominion of the seven major societal institutions. Uh, they refer to these institutions as mountains, and um, they have identified these seven major societal institutions as government, media, family, business, education, church, and arts. And and they claim that NAR leaders uh, uh, NAR leaders claim that God is raising up apostles to take control of these institutions. Again, it's only the apostle uh, that has authority to climb to the top to the the most important. Position. So say like uh, in, in government, they would say in the United States, the top position is the president. And in fact, they would say that that's the top position in government in the whole world because of the influence of the United States. And it's only apostles who have the authority to rise to the top of these mountains because they are needed to um, displace the territorial spirits that are presently ruling over these institutions. And only they have the authority to cast out these territorial spirit. So it all fits together. All these teachings fit together. Um, and so, uh, you know, they would say, well, secular humanists are presently controlling the arts. They're controlling education or, or media. And so the apostle must rise up, cast out the territorial spirit that's controlling the institution, and then the uh, gospel can go forth through these institutions. And God's kingdom can be set up. Yeah. Have you heard of this concept also of, of having various uh, workplace apostles? Okay, so you have these seven areas, uh, economy, government, family, spirituality, education, media, and some people call it the arts, other people call it celebration. I think arts makes a little bit more sense. Um, and so there will be people who are um, – almost apostles of these seven, seven different mountains where they will have authority in a certain area. And, um, well, they, 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 they are, they're said to have authority in these areas and they have some kind of a special anointing or calling to influence these different areas that is part of their vocation. Have you ever heard that whole concept? Definitely. Workplace apostles. So, so my leaders will say, you know, until recently, uh, we kind of assumed all apostles were in the churches. Um, but recently they've realized, no, apostles aren't just in the churches. There are also workplace apostles. And these workplace apostles have authority to govern in, in those institutions, to govern over the Christians working in those institutions. And, and again, you know, um, I, I may have hit on this, but the idea is that there's always a reason. There's always a reason they they haven't yet been able to achieve success. And so to, 
there's always a new revelation about, well, this is what has been missing. It, it was the seven not mandated, it was strategic level social warfare. And, well, now it was workplace apostles. We were only recognizing apostles in the church. We weren't recognizing workplace ap- apostles. And those are the guys and, and women who really have the influence to affect change because they're in the societal institutions. They have access to wealth and influence and, and, you know, um, they're the ones with real influence, even more than the apostles and the churches. And so, so that's kind of the hot new, uh, strategy right now is by recognizing and commissioning workplace apostles, then, then they will have access to the resources and, in um, you know, the, um, the influence and the power in society to, to set up God's kingdom. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Taking a, a turn here. You also talk about how, uh, this NAR movement is, um, charging into an area of unity, um, while neglecting theology and, and real doctrinal differences that you'll find. I mean, there's, of course, there's all kinds of Christian denominations out there. and We've got really minor uh, beefs with each other, really minor differences. We all agree on the essentials of the faith. But then there is this unity that's being pushed by the, the New Apostolic Reformation that's a little bit unhealthy. Uh, Bill Johnson, and I've got a series about him as well, uh, says it this way. He says, while doctrine is vitally important, it is not, it's not strong enough. Let me try that one again. <laughs> While doctrine is vitally important, it is not a strong enough foundation to bear the weight of his glory. That is about to be revealed through true unity. Um, how has this focus on unity compromised biblical doctrine and the gospel? Well, my leaders teach that the church must embrace a form of unity they refer to as apostolic unity. And uh, they say this type of unity is achieved when Christians submit to the authority of non-apostles. So, for instance, all the Christians in a, in a given city, um, you, uh, say Colorado Springs, uh, that there would be, they, they need to recognize the apostle in that, or apostles in that city and submit to the authority of those apostles. And that's how unity is achieved. Um, by all the Christians in a given city who attend, you know, maybe all these different churches. And uh, the interesting, the, the disturbing thing about apostolic unity is that it does not require shared commitment to core Christian beliefs. It, it requires, you know, a shared submission to the authority of an apostle. And so uh, this can be seen in the fact that some prominent in our leaders are willing to work with those who do not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, and the doctrine of the Trinity throughout the history of the Church has been considered a, an essential core Christian belief. And uh, so it's disturbing uh, that apostolic unity allows for people to reject core Christian beliefs like the Trinity while requiring them to accept aberrant NAR beliefs, like the idea that all Christians are supposed to submit to the authority of apostles and prophets. You know, they, they have to accept that belief but they don't have to accept belief in the Trinity. So it's, it's very troubling. True unity, true Christian unity as shown in Scripture is rooted in core Christian beliefs, including the doctrine of the Trinity. Interesting. Okay, yeah, and 
Um, <clears throat> I've seen this movement now too. Uh, there's been some leaders that are part of this new apostolic reformation that have even been reaching out to uh, the Pope uh, Francis that have been taking time to meet with him. So yeah, it's, it's interesting how this is all playing out. Um, okay, taking another turn. <laughs> Tell me about the New Apostolic Reformation teaching about divine health. So those followers of the apostles and prophets who continue to accept, to receive all their new revelations, are told that they will enjoy the divine health. Um, according to this teaching, one of the theological pioneers of this teaching was George Warnock. He was a leader in the Latter Rain Movement in the uh, post-World War II era in the United States, and um, that movement was an early precursor to this NAR movement. And George Warnock taught that um, that people who receive all the new revelations of the apostles and prophets can expect to live a thousand years. Uh, more contemporary prophet Rick Joyner says he's written that elderly followers will experience a reverse aging process, growing physically younger, and that there's no physical condition they will not be able to heal, uh, whether AIDS or lost limbs or, or whatever. According to some leaders in the movement, uh, such as Prophet Bill Heyman, who I must mention is one of the most influential prophets in this movement, he actually teaches that um, the followers of these apostles and prophets, if they receive all their new revelations, can actually attain immortality, meaning that they will never die. So that is a um, NAR twist, an unorthodox NAR twist on the doctrine of the rapture. Hmm... Interesting. Okay, okay. now that we've kind of touched on uh, eschatology a little bit, tell me about the eschatology of the New Apostolic Reformation. Okay, well, there, there's an eschatology that's been emerging. It, it's been popular, popularized today in large part through uh, the teachings of Mike Bickle. He has, he has a number of teachings on the Book of Revelation, and uh, so there's this totally new NAR interpretation of the Book of Revelation that's emerging, and the idea is that the plagues that you see described in the book of Revelation uh, that God sends against the Antichrist and his kingdom in the end time, that these plagues will actually be prophetically uh, released uh, through the followers of the apostles and prophets, that they will attain miraculous powers and, and through their words, um, kind of like this, what we were talking about earlier about decrees, apostolic decrees, they will actually release these plagues on, on the wicked of the world. And so um, that, that's a totally new interpretation of the book of Revelation that has not been held through church history. And, and I think uh, people should be especially cautious about anytime someone's promoting a teaching that has not been held through church history, you know, there should be some, um, some alarm bells going off <laughs> that, that right. nobody has discovered this interpretation up until now. Right. Do you, do you believe that author, uh, the authority to loose these judgments has been given to believers? <laughs> well, no, you know, I, what Christians, what, what, what Christians traditionally believe about the book of Revelation, there, there's a couple of camps, you know, uh, some will say that that 
we will be raptured out of here before end times Christians will be raptured out before God unleashes these judgments. And so those would be those Christians who hold to the pre-tribulational rapture doctrine. Um, other mm-hmm. Christians who believe that, that, um, you know, the church will be present on earth during this time have never thought that they would actually have a role in calling down the judgments on unbelievers. Um, and so, um, you know, that, that seems to me to share, you know, <laughs> a more in common with what uh, Jesus' disciples were rebuked for when they wanted to call down judgment on his enemies, you know. Um, <laughs> right. So, um, so that, that is, uh, no, that's, that, that's something that has no biblical support, the idea that believers will actually be the ones that are, you know, prophetically, through their miracle working power, be calling down these plagues. Yeah, you would think that Jesus would have said something there, like, hey, maybe now is not the time, but in the last days, you know, maybe he would have, you would say, and I know this is an argument from silence, but you would think he would say something right there. Um, Also, when you look at the book of Revelation, Jesus is the one uh, who is opening the seals. Again, nothing is mentioned about believers opening those seals or blowing those trumpets or whatever. You know what I'm saying? It it just doesn't, it's not working with the scriptures. It just doesn't fit. Right. Um, There's just no support for it. And and that's that's the, the biggest problem. Right. Right. So uh, coming up to the end here, in conclusion, uh, what do you think overall the dangers of following uh, NAR teachings are? Well, you know, and, and I'm not sure if we touched on this in our in our first interview, but the new revelations of the NAR prophets and apostles are placed on an authoritative par with Scripture. They are seen as being equal to Scripture, and, and that's despite denials to the contrary. NAR leaders will deny that that they, uh, their revelations have the same authority as scripture. But what we do in our books is we, uh, we actually show how despite their denials, um, in practice, their revelations are treated as enjoying the same unique authority as scripture. And so as a result of their words being seen as having this, this authority, uh, that's, that's equal to scripture, um, there's been all kinds of harm. People have become um, just overly dependent on uh, prophets to tell them how to live their lives, who to marry, where to live, um, you know, how to spend their retirement savings, how to invest it. Um, you know, a division has resulted in churches. Churches split because people have, uh, you know, um, these new revelations are coming in and people are dividing over these revelations. And, um, and the authority that these apostles and prophets are claiming to have, people are dividing over that. And then, um, you know, we we talked about this, I think, in the last interview, but um, people, their spiritual growth is being stunted because they are being distracted uh, by all these NAR teachings and practices. They're busy prayer walking and, and spiritual mapping and, and, you know, all of these other things instead of focusing on true biblical teachings and true biblical practices that, that lead to true spiritual maturity. So, so these are all types of dangers that have come from from these NAR teachings. 
what would you say to a parent uh, of, of a child who is involved, or a youth, I should say, a teen who's involved with this movement? It's so big amongst the, the youth. Right. Well, you know, we go into, we go into detailed advice in, um, in appendix of our book, God Super Apostles. This advice revolves around um, clarifying what the child actually believes and gently challenging their beliefs with scripture. And we really emphasize that this, the challenging of their beliefs with scripture must be done with respect and love. And the reason we say that's so crucial, I mean, it's just crucial because, first of all, because we're followers of Christ and, and love should characterize everything we do and all of our interactions, right? But it's especially crucial uh, that that comes through in our interactions with, with people in this movement because leaders in the NAR movement often demonize those who challenge their teachings and they'll just say, oh, that's just, you know, that's just because they're a Pharisee or they have that heart, you know, they have a critical spirit. And so if you respond gently with love, then it will be more difficult uh, for your child to dismiss you as having evil intentions. And it may even make them start to question what they've heard from their teachers. If, if they see nothing but love coming from you and, and gentleness in your words, and they go, huh, my leaders are telling me that that those who oppose them are evil, that they have critical spirits. But what I'm actually seeing is is love. And this incongruity, you know, it, the, the, it might actually make them to start to question other things that the apostles and prophets are telling them. If that makes okay. sense. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, how how does that apply then? Uh, many of these same ideas probably apply when speaking to somebody who's actually uh, like a pastor or a teacher. Right. Well, we <clears throat> they were, may actually be. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, I was say we encourage pastors uh, to really familiarize themselves with this movement because the odds are uh, some people in their church have come under the influence of NAR teachings to some degree or another. And and that's not just Pentecostal and charismatic churches, although in these churches, you know, um, you'll see these teachings the most. But, but even in uh, Baptist churches, whatever church you have, people have have come under the influence of these teachings. You might have young people in your church who are listening to, uh, tuning in to IHOP online, IHOP conferences, or or um, people who are making a trip to Bethel Church in Reading, you know, to see what's going on there and, and bringing it back. And, and um, so we urge pastors to familiarize themselves with this movement and also to use their pulpit to warn people to be on the lookout for NAR teachings. Mm, amen to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, great. Holly, it has been a an honor and a privilege to have you on the podcast. Um, thank you so much for, for all the information you're bringing here. Uh, your books, fantastic. I cannot compliment them enough. They're, they're great. Uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Michael. It's been my privilege. All right, guys, that's it for today. Uh, again, that's Holly Pivik. Uh, her website, spiritoferror.com, lots of good information there. And her two books that we talked about today and, and last week, A New Apostolic Reformation, A Biblical Response to a Worldwide Movement, and her other book, God's Super Apostles. So I will stop there. Guys, yeah, you can find those books on Amazon.com, but as we spoke about in the first podcast, 
You can also find her books at weaverbookcompany.com. Guys, I would suggest that you get them there. Uh, Amazon, as I'm learning more and more, uh, they really don't do you any favors. They'll have your books on their website, and that's all good and fine, but they will dictate the price and uh, really cut into the, the profit that an author really deserves. And guys, they, they pour their whole blood, sweat, and tears into these books. And uh, I think, you know, a workman is worth their hire. When you put a book together like that and put all that good information together, well, let me put it this way. If a business cannot make money, uh, it goes out of business. It stops producing value. It stops doing what it does best. And uh, authors, especially authors like Holly Pivik, uh, we should encourage them with uh, uh, our funds to help them keep going, to encourage them to keep producing good content. Does that make sense? I mean, I don't want to bang that drum too much, but anyway... Uh, with that, friends, uh, next week we'll be jumping into a whole new topic. I think next week we'll be talking about uh, Mormonism and witnessing the Mormons with Jason Oak. So look forward to that. And with that, I love you guys, and we'll see you next week.